All right, Genesis 37, open your Bibles. It's been a while, it's been four weeks since we've been in the, Genesis, in the book of Genesis. Uh, if you're new to our church, we, we preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Um, I would say that uh, um, most, if you've been through this series, have a pretty good grasp on the first 36 chapters of the book of Genesis, uh, what it's about, you know, the overview. Um, and today we, bring the, we begin the final section of this great book. And as you know, Genesis is divided uh, first by four great events, um, the creation, the fall, the flood, and then the nations, and then four people. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, Josh, and, and Joseph. Um, and if life has ever been unfair to you, which if I ask the question, has life ever been unfair to you, then you would raise your hand, right? If you've ever wondered where God was when something happened that made absolutely no sense, in fact, it made no sense then and it makes no sense now, then this last section on the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph is, is for you. In Joseph, life is unjust, it's unfair, it's unexplainable, it's unbelievably confusing. Now, we've all had seasons like what Joseph is going through. Joseph had decades, just decade after decade after decade, decades of hurt, decades of abandonment, decades of being mocked, decades of being falsely accused, decades of being falsely imprisoned, and yet in all of this, you know, you never see him uh, return evil for evil. You never receive, you see him returning insult for insult. In fact, what you see him doing is overcoming evil with good. And so Joseph is, is one of the most exceptional uh, characters in all the Bible. In fact, one-fourth of the book of Genesis is devoted to Joseph. Abraham has 14 chapters. Joseph has 12. And God is going to use Joseph to to ultimately fulfill his promises that he made to Abraham. So even though Joseph's brothers send him to, to Egypt as a slave, in God's providence, God uses Joseph to save his family uh, and his nation in a famine. And if you're sitting here thinking, man, I just I have it hard. Life is just hard. Wait till you see Joseph. In fact, if you think you have a dysfunctional family, wait till you see Joseph. Joseph grew up in an idolatrous home. Two of his brothers committed mass murder. He has a sister who was raped. His mother died when he was 16. He has three stepmoms. All of his siblings hate him. One of his brothers committed incest was one of his stepmoms. And yet he overcomes evil with good. His mom was his dad's favorite of four wives. So it stands to reason that Joseph is daddy's favorite. That causes all kinds of problems, as you can imagine. And so when his dad, Jacob, was returning home after a couple of decades on the run, God meets him. And after an, an all-night wrestling match, God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. His 12 sons would form the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Jacob has an older twin brother named Esau, he becomes the father of the Edomites, and the Edomites and Israelites are always in conflict. In fact, the Herods, we read it during this, the Christmas season, the Herods were Edomites. So last time when we were in chapter 36, we, we saw that Esau was, was his nation, the Edomites, they were expanding, and they were powerful. Esau has riches, 
He has kings. He has chiefs. He was successful in every way that the world would call you successful, except in one, spiritual. He was a spiritual failure. He had all the things that the world would value, but he didn't have God. And then there's Jacob. What does Jacob have? He has God. In fact, we see that in the first verse. In fact, he's obedient to God is what we see in the first verse. And just because of time constraints this morning, we're just going to start in verse 1 and work through this whole chapter. Genesis chapter 37. I hope you found it. I used to tell my students, if you can't find it, fake it. But I'd say, if you can't find it, go to your table of contents and then find it. Uh, Genesis 37 verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. Remember, chapter 36 and, and 37, they, they kind of go together a bit, uh, and, and the contrast between these two chapters are huge. Jacob doesn't have lands to govern. Jacob doesn't have big tribes of people to lead. That's Esau. Okay, Esau has all of that in chapter six or 36. Uh, there are no chiefs in Jacob's line. There's no kings in his line. In fact, what does it say about Jacob here? Look at verse 31, I mean, verse 1 again. Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. And so Jacob is a sojourner. He's a wanderer. But the big point of verse 1 is that Jacob was right where God had wanted him. Right? Where was he? He was in Canaan. He's in the promised land. He's literally living in the promised land. So Esau has riches, Jacob is God. And then there's this whole favoritism thing. Remember, Jacob's favorite wife was Rebekah. And his favorite child was from Rebekah, and that was Joseph, which meant that he was then the favored son. So point number one in your notes is the favored son. Verse two says this, or begins with this. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Now, as you read through this, in reality, it's, it's really not, well, you can't say it's not about the generations. It's really about Joseph, though. Like, this is Joseph's story. Jacob had 11 other sons, but 25% of Genesis is not about Jacob's other sons. It's about his one son, Joseph. Okay, look at verse 2 again. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Okay, so just for a second, because I know we always have new people here, is, is okay, so there's a problem now. J Jacob, Jacob, who is the father of Israel, right? He's the 12 tribes of Israel. He's, this is God's man. He's got a bunch of wives. In fact, he's got four wives. Can you go away? So is God for polygamy? No, God's not for polygamy. Just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean that God endorses it. Murder's in the Bible, adultery's in the Bible, thievery's in the Bible. Does that mean it's good to do? No, that doesn't become the model for how we do things, right? Why is it in there then? Because it's true. Jacob had four wives. It's there because it really happened, but just because it happened doesn't mean that God was endorsing it. Okay, so we covered that in depth in another sermon in Genesis, so if you want more on that, um, go back through the, the series. But there's a lot of people that read verse 2 
And, and they immediately turned Joseph into the family tattletale. Do you see that? And, and Joseph brought back at the end of verse 2 a bad report about them to their father. I don't think he's the family tattletale. In fact, I think the more we learn about Joseph, the more we see uh, his concern for his father's reputation. And I think we see a lot more about the fact that, that he really does care for his brothers. He's genuinely concerned for his brothers. And so Joseph is out there shepherding with his brothers, and he brings a bad report to his dad. Again, it sounds like the family tattletale, but that, that word for bad or evil in the Hebrew, it, it carries the idea of something that's broadly known. Like everybody knows about this. So it was something Jacob was going to hear about, whether, whether Joseph told him or not. Again, the more you learn about Joseph, the more you realize he's a man of integrity. Joseph is a man who's committed to doing the right thing, regardless of, of what it's going to cost him. So when he goes and gives his dad a bad report, it's not because he's against his brothers. It's because he's for his father. He's being proactive, not reactive. He cares about his brothers. You know, one thing that, that I try to pattern my own life about, and, you know, when I counsel uh, teenagers or parents or couples or whatever, is I, I say that I don't keep secrets from parents and I don't keep secrets from spouses. Not forever, at least. Right? At some point, we have to get some things across. The, the way I tell my kids is I say, with information comes responsibility. If you've got information about something, then you have a responsibility towards that. You, you can't know evil about someone and not do anything about it if you're a person of integrity. You know, in our culture, that, that, what's that saying? Uh, snitches get stitches, right? That's going to ring true in Joseph's life. Information comes responsibility, and Joseph tells his dad what's going on. Verse 3. Now Israel, this is Jacob. Now Jacob, or Israel, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. Again, you would think that, that Jacob would have learned from the horrific experiences that, that he went through with favoritism in his own family. And he, he, you would think that he would know that this is just going to cause more problems. But Jacob couldn't help it. Why? Because he just loved Rachel. Rachel was his favorite. In fact, Rachel said about Joseph, when she was finally able to have a child, she said about Joseph, she says, he has taken away my reproach. In other words, Joseph uh, being born to Rachel took away uh, the stigma of her not being able to have children. And Rachel, remember, she was the one that said, give me children or else I'll die. And Jacob's like, who do you think I am? And, and so he knows that Joseph made Rachel happy. And if Rachel's happy, then Jacob's happy because Rachel was his favorite. And so as a result of that, Jacob makes Joseph this very colored tunic. Very colored. It was a, I think the King James says, uh, a coat of many colors. In literature outside of the scriptures, you, you would give this type of, of coat to a father's heir. The, the coat would go all the way from the wrist all the way down to the ankles. It, it wasn't the kind of coat that you would give to somebody who pastured flocks which is what he was doing. 
So by, by, by jo- Jacob giving Joseph this coat, what Jacob was doing is he was making a statement that I love Joseph more than I love the rest of you. This coat means Jacob is no longer a laborer. He's gone from laborer to owner. He's gone from blue collar to white collar. The point is really clear. Joseph is my favorite and Joseph is my heir. And so Joseph gets the birthright. Joseph will be the spiritual leader of this tribe. That's what's going on just with this coat. Okay, this coat speaks volumes. Look at verse four. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Like they couldn't even talk professionally to him. You, you can see the problem of favoritism here, right? So he's the most loved by his father, and because he's the most loved by his father, and everybody knows it, then he's the most hated by his brothers. Does that make sense? Like you, you see the problem going on here. Now look at verse five. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and, and lo, my sheaf, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, that sounds real braggadocious, but this, this is actually a, a dream that came directly from God. This was a prophetic moment. And depending on how you see Joseph, kind of determines what you think his motive is in sharing this dream. So if you take him as the family tattletale, the egomaniac, then his motives are less than pure. If you take him as one who cares for his family, then his motives are good. We know the end of the story. They don't know the end. We know that this is a prophetic word from God. And and can we just say, like, as a blanket statement, it's always good to share God's word? He's sharing God's word is what he's doing. Even if it means that it's hard on the hearers to hear it, he's still sharing God's word. So his first dream here speaks of his position and power relating to the earth and controlling sheaves. The harvest field represents resources. It represents the wealth of the people. And so this dream is, is a prophecy It looks forward to the day when Joseph is going to be second in charge of Egypt, when he's going to have full control over the resources of the earth. And when he has that full control, he'll be able to help Israel. And not just Israel, many other nations as well. So let's just, before we go to the brothers, let's just picture the scene here. Here's Joseph. He can't help anymore with the sheep pasturing out in the fields, right? Because daddy gave him a new suit and tie. And then he tells his brothers that he's going to be in charge of them. And he's 17. Which brings us to point number two, the hateful brothers. The hateful brothers. His brothers clearly understand the message of this dream, and they hated him for it. In fact, look at at verse 8. Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Look at verse four, they hated him. Look at verse five, they hated him even more. Now in verse eight, they hated him even more than the more they hated him when they hated him before. 
That's a Dr. Seuss moment, isn't it? <laughs> so then he has another dream, and you're going, shh, don't tell anybody. Verse 9. Now he still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have still had another, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Oh, Joseph. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? This second dream is bigger than the first dream, but no less offensive. This is a a dream about his power. This is a dream about his authority over them. I mean, this dream is so big that even the father who loves him more than the rest of them, even he rebukes them or him. But then look at verse 11. Look what it says. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So he rebukes him, right? Because outwardly, that's probably the right thing to do, right? Because you got this braggadocious son, sounds like it at least. They don't know it's prophecy, but they got this son that's coming. Oh, you think yesterday's dream was good? I'll wait till you hear this one. So his dad's like, hey, you can't talk like that. Don't say stuff like that. You're going to think, what, am I going to bow before you? Your mom's going to bow before you? By the way, his mom's dead at this point. But he says he, he kept the saying in mind. Why? Well, Jacob had a dream too. Remember? Jacob's ladder. Back in Genesis 28, the stairway ascending to heaven. And, and for me, I, I'm very curious how Joseph communicated those dreams. Sometimes when, when I have a hard truth to share, I did it in Sunday school this morning. I said, oh, you're not going to like me very much. I did that this morning, right, for about coffee, all you coffee drinkers. Right? I said, you're not going to like me very much. I, I do that to kind of soften the blow. It doesn't say if Joseph softened the blow, right? It almost reads as if he went to breakfast and putting on his new coat, right, and saying, you think yesterday's dream was wild. Wait until I tell you what I dreamed last night. Here's what we know for sure. His brothers were mad, hateful, envious, jealous of him. And daddy kept this in his mind. Look at verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Okay, now now don't miss this, okay? Because in verse 2, Joseph was shepherding with them. Remember when I said he's not the the pasturing guy anymore. He's not the shepherding guy anymore. That's for the brothers, right? That's not him anymore because he's got the nice coat, right? He's now white collar. He's no longer blue collar. And so, so Joseph is, is no longer shepherding. He's been promoted and he's wearing too nice of clothes to mess with sheep. And so his brothers then are out there. Verse 13, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock. And bring word back to me. So he came, so he sent him from the valley of Hebron to, and he came to Shechem. 
Now, there's some important details to understand, and, and especially as we get to the end of the sermon, it's going to make a lot more sense. But, but the, the name of the city is, is, is Hebron originally. Like, they, he leaves Hebron. Does anybody remember what Hebron meant? It means the place of fellowship. So Joseph leaves the place of fellowship. Jacob sends Joseph from the place of fellowship to where his brothers are in Shechem. Now, remember Shechem. Man, we had a four-week Christmas series. How do I remember Shechem now? Shechem was the place of compromise. Shechem was the place where, where Dinah was violated. Shechem was the place where his brothers made the deal to have the men circumcised you know, in order to marry the, the sister and intermarry between the tribes. And then on the third day, it says when they were still in pain, they murdered all the men in the city. That's in Shechem. And, and their actions uh, put the fear of Israelites into the people. So that's where, where Jacob, or that's where Israel thinks they're hanging out. That's where he sends Joseph to to check on them. Now, I don't think Joseph's, or Jacob's main concern is if they have enough food and money. I don't even think he's all that concerned about their physical well-being as much as he is to know how they're doing spiritually. I don't think Jacob's a fool. I think Jacob knows what the people in Shechem are like. I also think Jacob knows what his sons are like. So he tells Joseph to check on them, but Joseph can't find them. Look at verse 15. So a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, they have moved from here, uh, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now notice that Joseph didn't go to Shechem and and go, well, they're not here. Um, I'm going to bail. bail. I, I can't find them. I did my part. Dad said, go to Shechem. I went to Shechem. They're not there. I'm going home. Actually, he says he stayed. He wandered. The Hebrew word for wander there conveys the idea of, of looking and then getting lost. So he, he's deep in this. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that a man just happens to find him and directs him to go to Dothan to find his brothers. It's not a coincidence because all of this is part of God's plan. Look at verse 18. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now, as shepherds, they would have been on the highest point, right? They would have been up above, looking down to make sure there's no wolves coming for their sheep, right? They're they're looking for for bandits. They're, They're at the high point. They're looking down. Well, they see Joseph coming from a distance far enough away to concoct a plan to kill him. How do you think they knew it was him? He got the coat on. Yeah, he's got this really colorful coat. There's that little snitch. Man, I hate that kid. Verse 20. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what would become of his dreams. So plan A is kill him. It's throw him into a pit. It's, It's actually a cistern. In fact, we find out later that they throw him into a pit and there's no water in it. So we can say that this is a dry season and they're looking for grass. 
They're in normal shepherding routine, right? Normal thing, and then royal robes shows up, and they're like, Let, let's kill them, let's, let's throw them into a pit, you know, we'll tell daddy a wild beast uh, did it, and, and then you see what it says, and then we'll see what happens with his dreams. And they're still thinking about this, right? They're still angry about this. They're still hateful about this. They're still jealous about this. So we don't know whose plan it was. It, it just says the brothers. And, and pure conjecture, but I wonder if it was Simeon. Right, Simeon had the birthright, and now he's worried about his birthright. We don't know, it doesn't say. Look at verse 21. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not, do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Okay, so the brothers want to kill him. And Reuben stops them and, and like pleads for his life. Like, don't, don't kill Joseph, because his plan was to, to wait until later and he could go back and rescue Joseph. And then he could bring him back home and, and everything's fine. And, and the, so the brothers have plan A and Reuben has plan A for him. And we would look and go, man, bravo Reuben for now. Verse 23, so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic and the very colored tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And so Reuben's plan is coming together perfectly, right? You can actually see how much they hated that tunic. First thing they do is they strip it off of him. And they throw him into an empty pit. And look at the first part of 25a, or 25. Then they sat down to eat a meal. That tells you a lot about these boys, doesn't it? Not only do they hate the tunic, you can see how much they hate Joseph. And they throw him into a pit, and then they sit down for dinner. Can you imagine? It never says anything about Joseph, and, you, and, and, and you're just wondering, like, what, what happened to Joseph? What was he thinking? What was he doing? The great thing about Scripture is that God often gives us just divine commentary, and he does that in this case. Uh, look on the screen, Genesis 42, verse 21. Then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother. This is when they were, uh, they were in prison for uh, you know, stealing uh, Joseph's stuff and uh, so far into Genesis. They said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, you will not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They, the, the Hebrew word for distress, same word we use for anxiety. Same word we use for being oppressed. Joseph is, is literally pleading with them to let him out. He's begging, he's distressed, he's anxious. What are they doing? You can eat the rest of that chicken. Can I, can I get some bread? Hey, don't you hear Joseph? Yeah, 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 yeah. These are brutal men. It shouldn't surprise you that they're brutal men considering what they did in Shechem where they murdered all the men. Let's keep going in 25. They bowed down. They sat down to eat a meal 
And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels uh, bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on the way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some, some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Yeah, bravo Judah, right? Judah, Leah's fourth son. He convinces the rest of them to spare his life and, and get him out of the pit and sell him to some traders. Hey, listen, guys, let's not kill him. Let's make some money off of him. Look at verse 29. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. So this, this is mourning. It's a symbol of mourning. And, and, and at first glance, this bravo Reuben, like great job Reuben, until you see who he's mourning for. He's not mourning for Joseph. He's mourning for himself. Look at verse 30. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? He didn't ask how, where Joseph was. He's like, well, what's gonna happen to me now? I can't believe you guys did that. Look how this is gonna affect me. He's more concerned for the, his welfare than he is for Joseph's. By the way, this isn't good for him either. He's the oldest son. He doesn't have a very good reputation because of his sin with his stepmom. As the oldest son, he's responsible. What's he gonna tell his father about what happened to Joseph? You know what Reuben should have done? He should have asked which way the caravan went so he could catch up and, and buy Joseph back for them. But look how the story continues, verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped, it, dipped the tunic in the blood. And then they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. And then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now there's a bit of poetic justice here. Remember, it was Jacob who used the skin of an animal to deceive his father, Isaac. And now these brothers are using the blood of an animal to deceive him. In fact, what they did, if you just look at it, they just let their father jump to conclusions. All they did is ask a question. Daddy, we found this in the field. Can you take a look and see if this belongs to your favorite son? I mean, you can almost see, like, their faces just hung low and, like, well, that's what we thought too. We just wanted to verify with you because, Daddy, we know how much you love them. We are so sorry for your loss. Verse 34. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. In other words, for the rest of my life, I'm going to die feeling like this. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now listen, I know you, we read a 
passage like this and you think, what does this have to do with me? Right? This is a narrative section of scripture. It's a story. Most of you guys were familiar with probably 90% of what I just said. Are there lessons in here for us? Oh, yeah. How do we apply this? Number one, we rightly respond to suffering. We rightly respond to suffering. We all suffer in many ways, right? All of us do. And so I want to share with you three types of suffering in our world and how we should respond to each of them. And so the first one, letter A, is common suffering. Common suffering means that it's common to all. It's, uh, all of us suffer because we live in a fallen world. So Christians and non-Christians get cancer. Christians aren't spared from earthquakes or earaches or car accidents. In fact, we live in a Genesis 3 world. In a Genesis 3 world, sin, sickness, suffering, and death uh, occur continually. And this will continue to occur until Revelation 21 when there's a new heaven and a new earth. It's just common suffering. All of us suffer. Well, how do you respond to common suffering? You have to trust God. Life is unfair. People are unjust. But God is good, and he's loving, and he's kind, and he's merciful, and he is sovereign over all of it. Charles Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, then we must trust his heart. And so the cure for common suffering is to trust God. And we do that by spending time in his word and spending time with his people. And we get to claim the promises that he makes exclusively to his children. But then there's also point B is carnal suffering. Carnal suffering is what happens to Christians when God disciplines us because we uh, refuse to repent of sin. Hebrews 12, verse 5, look what it says. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he, what's it say? He disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The implied answer to that is there's none. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And so he's making a point that if you can continue to live in sin, continue to go uh, walk away from the Lord and not towards the things of God, and God's not disciplining you for it, you're not his child. But if you are his child and, and you're suffering because of your sin, what do you do? Well, you confess it. You turn from it. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess our sin. We turn from our sin. We, we repent. We literally change direction. So there's common suffering, common to all of us, and there's carnal suffering. It's for the Christian who is, is, is in disobedience to the things of God, and so God is disciplining him. And then point C, there's Christian suffering. Some of the suffering that we go through is for the sole reason that you are a Christian. If Jesus suffered, what would make us think that we won't suffer? 
fact, Paul told Timothy, every one of us who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we will undergo persecution. Well, if we're being persecuted, well, what do we do? Complain about it, we whine about it, we write to the, you know, on Facebook or you know, become an influencer. Is that what we do? No, Matthew 5, look what Jesus said to do. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, men, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So what should we do? Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you're being legitimately persecuted, and I say legitimately because I think sometimes Christians are persecuted because they're just jerks, right? I mean, sometimes we just say the wrong thing at the right time, right? I've done that. But if you're undergoing real true persecution, then you could turn around really and, and like Joseph would say at the end, you meant all of this for evil and God meant it all for good. So if you're suffering because of your faith in Christ, then the response of that is rejoice and be glad. All right, number two, recognize the Father's hand. <clears throat> I don't know if you noticed or not, but God is not mentioned anywhere in this passage. His hand is all over it. In fact, we see the Father's hand in Jacob of all people. And when you're reading it, did you wonder at any point why, why Jacob would risk his favorite son? I mean, he had other servants. Why not send a servant to do, to do that, right? I mean, he knows the character of his sons. I mean, why send him and why send him in that coat? And again, God gives us divine commentary on this chapter through the psalmist. Look at Psalm 105, beginning in verse 8. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made to Abraham, or with Abraham, his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I have given the land, I will give the land of Canaan as a portion of your inheritance, when there were only a few of them in number, very few and strangers in it. And they wandered about from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He permitted no man to oppress them. He reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, do not, and do my prophets no harm. harm. And he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. Then it says, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So who sent Joseph? Did Jacob send him? No, Yahweh did. God sent him. God sent Joseph to go through what he would end up going through because he was getting Joseph to Egypt in order to save his people Israel. God knows the end from the beginning. We, we have the advantage of looking back and it makes complete sense to us. It made no sense to him. It would have made no sense at all. If, if it would have made sense, then he wouldn't be pleading to get out of the pit. And, and, and I wonder, even for me, like, have, have I resigned to the fact that God has you where he has you and going through what you're going through because he knows what's coming next. And so you have to recognize the Father's hand, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And then point number three, 
Listen, I know a lot of times we get to the final point and you guys hang up on me. Don't hang up. This is such a great, this, this is the summary. This is the, it culminates here. Recognize the son's foreshadowing. You know, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they searched the scriptures in hopes that they would find eternal life, but not that they would find him. And what he said is, is these scriptures, they speak about me. Luke 24, verse 27, look what it says. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So with Moses, who wrote Genesis? Moses, right? So Moses wrote about Jesus without knowing it was Jesus, even in this story. It's a story about Joseph, but really it's a story about Jesus. Remember we said that, that he left Hebron? What, was that? What, was, what does Hebron mean? Place of fellowship, right? So he leaves a place of fellowship. Who else left his place of fellowship with his father? Jesus did. Joseph left the place of fellowship with his father in Hebron. Where did Joseph go? He went to Dothan. Dothan can be translated in a couple different ways, but one of the ways is law or customs. And so both Joseph and Jesus were sent by their father from a place of fellowship to the land of the law. Why? For the welfare of their brothers. Both Jesus and Joseph, both of them sought to do their father's will. Both Jesus and Joseph were both misunderstood by their brothers. Both Jesus and Joseph both spoke truth to their brothers and it only made their brothers mad. Both Joseph and Jesus went to their brothers who did not receive them. Both Joseph and Jesus had a Reuben in their lives who was afraid of what others would think. Joseph had Reuben, Jesus had Pontius Pilate. More concerned with themselves than they were for him. Both Joseph and Jesus were stripped of their robes. Both Joseph and Jesus had those robes covered in blood. Both Joseph and Jesus were sold for a few pieces of silver. Both Joseph and Jesus were handed over to the Gentiles and lied about by their Hebrew brothers. Both Joseph and Jesus were thrown into a pit, Jesus into a tomb, and both of them rose out of those pits. Both Joseph and Jesus were sold out and left for dead. Both Joseph and Jesus were saviors. Joseph saved the nation of Israel and Jesus died for the sins of the world. Can you see why Jesus would say, all of these scriptures speak about me? My hope then is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is simply sinking sand. And if you have never trusted in Christ to save you, the scriptures are all about him. The gospel is all over the pages of this book. Please do not leave here today unforgiven. Our Father, thank you for your word. Still amazed. What a privilege it is to, to study it, to preach it, to, to be convicted by it, and to be so encouraged. Thank you for the sure salvation we have. Thank you for Christ, the one who was died and was buried, and then three days later he rose from death, conquering sin and death. I pray for those this morning who 
maybe for the first time understand the gospel. Maybe for the first time recognize what Jesus has done for him, for them. Pray that you would save them now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand.